Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. And today we are hot off the press um, from a curated conversation that we have come from. Yes. Yes. We talked about relationships in the digital age and we covered dating, strangers, friends and family and how those relationships have been impacted for better and for worse by technology. By technology. And it was great. And we'll talk about that later on in the episode. Absolutely. What has this week meant for you? Well, it's weird because it's your last week in London. I know. Um, but I also haven't seen you much this week other than to record our last episode. And this week was sort of quite busy with things at work. Um, but we had a very nice Friday night. And this weekend... Georgia is... hosted a wonderful dinner party. <laughs> What's, yeah. And it was one of those lovely things where you put together people who haven't met before. And mm. everyone totally. had a great time. Or at least I think they did. Totally. I had a great time. Yes, so did I. So did I. Um, often as a host, I can be quite frenetic. <laughs> uh, but I think because I'd cooked everything beforehand, I think I was okay. We had a delicious curry. Mm. Veggie curry. Yeah. So good. Anyway, uh, this week I have been really enjoying... I, I essentially listened to Brave on Audible in two days. I can't believe you did that. That's really intense. Yeah. Maybe it was longer than that, about three days. And I got so attached to it. Um, you know when you get attached to a book or a voice of the character or the author and you just think, wow, I am really, really sad to part with it. I don't want yes, to. Yes, you don't want it to end. Did oh, you get to the last Brave. chapter and you just thought, ooh... I might save this. So I do that with every book. Um, it's what I've been, what I've done with Educated, mm-hmm. <laughs> is I've just stopped and I need to go back to it tomorrow and finish it. But when I'm really attached to something, I often will stop and leave it for a bit, which is kind of silly. So with Brave, I made a conscious effort to not do that and just be like, no, Georgia, just listen to it <laughs> to the end. But I don't like things ending. And actually, I was thinking about this. And when I was younger, I never used to finish books willingly. Really? Yeah, I didn't like it. And I you felt just left so them. sad, yeah. So what are the top three examples of books or audiobooks that you haven't wanted to finish? Um, the Addictions one by Russell Brand. Very good. Last Chapter is one of the best, though. Yeah, I know. On the birth of his daughter. Yeah. Such an interesting chapter on a, really, from a male perspective. Really interesting. The birth of your child. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And being very present for it. Absolutely. Um, this is going to hurt. Uh, took me four months to finish it. Wow. Yeah. And the ending is very significant. So yeah. I, I didn't read that until four months later. Okay. Yeah. Um, and another one. Oh, Normal People by Sally Rooney. Stopped. Left it. For like three weeks and then went to finish it. I definitely don't do that, but I agree with how brilliant (laughs) all of those books were. I have an issue with endings, I think. (laughs) I think I will get to a point in a book where I haven't got very much to go and I accelerate my pace of reading. Do you? Yeah. I really like completing things. Oh, I also things, did though. that with A Good Time to Be a Girl. I also but did also, that with... I, I did with so many yeah. books. I, can't I think weird. my feeling is that if I've read a really brilliant book, I want to have unread it so I can go and read it again for the first time. Ooh. Do you go back and read books that you've already read? Yeah. For that reason, okay. Not often, but I do. Mm. 
You know that part in the vow when um, with Rachel McAdams and um, Channing, Tatum. Channing Tatum, and she said, "What is the book that you wish you could go back and read for the first time again?" Mm. And then, yeah, this is for anyone who hasn't seen it. Basically, she has a car accident, it's all based on a true story, and then she loses a huge part of her memory, and all of the memory that she had of her husband is gone, and then he tries to make her fall in love with him again, and he describes it as, what about reading your favourite book for the first time? Let's try and do that. And has a lovely ambiguous ending, but... Yeah. Yeah, that's good. We saw that together, Valentine's Such Day. Such a long time. Oh, good Valentine's Day. It was great Valentine's Day. So this week I have been listening to the Audible series of a podcast called To The Women. Oh, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. How was it? It's good. I haven't got that far into it yet. Okay. It is... I like the premise, which is essentially women talking about other women who have inspired them or guided them or Mm -hmm. brought them up. And I think that... As women, we tend to be better at talking about other women that we love rather than talking about ourselves. But it raises everybody up in doing that exercise. Uh So I'm enjoying that. And I also went to a great evening event at Floral Street, which is, I'm going to say it's my favourite perfume. Is that your favourite perfume? I think it's definitely one of mine. Yeah. So we came across them at Stylist Live and... One of my favourite things about them is their packaging. So it's all made from paper and water. So it's completely decompostable and mm-hmm. recyclable. Mm-hmm. And it's very ethical. And they're actually up for an awards with the Sunday Times mm-hmm. um, for Ethical Product of the Year. So you can go and vote for them there. Um, but their fragrances are really amazing. And I learned loads about it. And I just felt very in tune with a scents that you don't often focus on. I think a lot of our world is about seeing or hearing. Mm-hmm. That's so true, actually. It was really interesting. Mm. And we had to identify different uh, scents. And my team won. It was great. And then we got a bottle of Carver as a prize. It was a brilliant evening. Which I'd really recommend it. on Friday. <laughs> um, I would like to also shout out quickly to the Goop podcast, which I've been really enjoying in the last couple of weeks. And in particular, an episode with Gwyneth Paltrow interviewing Dax Shepard on triggers and self-esteem. And Dax um, is a, I guess, recovering addict, uh, 14 years sober. And they talk about things that they find triggering, things that erode or build self-esteem, the sort of pathway to how he found peace with that. Um, Also looking at his, again, I love talking about relationships, um, but his relationship with his wife, he said something like, we, I don't necessarily believe in finding the one, but you find someone that you really respect and really admire and you make it the one. And I thought, oh, actually, I really like that notion because it's not this sort of fairy tale ambiguity it's like oh actually this is a person I really respect really love and I'm really close to and they become the one Mm. um but I really I just it was such an honest conversation and it was a fantastic episode so and also talking about the vulnerability and terror of intimacy which I really appreciate because I feel like we don't talk about that enough and often that's why a lot of relationships fail is because they get to a certain stage where you are like the person can almost see you 
in a way where you can't even see you and that sort of that kind of intimacy it's very confronting it's terrifying and mm. then it ends and because of whatever it's reason. the after the happily ever after isn't it mm. because if you see the too often it's the you've met each other or you've committed to each other and then that's when the rom-com ends mm. and actually the it's it's still difficult and yeah. confronting after that and also they talk about how relationships mirror the worst parts of yourself which is so so true like mm. you are never confront like as confronted with the worst parts of yourself than when you're with in an re- intimate and romantic relationship and they really explore that um so That's great i'll listen so please do the first figure that we're going to talk about today is the actor chuti gatwa who we saw present as part of a conversation i guess with the journalist and author elizabeth day and that is, I held off on talking about that in the intro, the highlight of my week. Um, mm. This was for the launch of her book, How to Fail, Everything I've Learned from Things Going Wrong, which is based on her podcast, How to Fail, which we have spoken about at length. Mm-hmm. And we just wanted to go into the conversation that they had and talk about his role in sex education, which is a new, ne- I say it's new, came out in January, Netflix series. Um, It's kind of a sitcom about a teenage boy who is the son of a therapist, sex therapist, and he sets up a kind of underground clinic in his Mm. high school for the teenagers and their relationship issues and also personal issues. Right, and there's the daughter of an actual psychotherapist. I can completely relate because (laughs) you pick up everything from what your parents are talking about. Sorry, continue. So that's what he basically does, is picks up what his mum is doing mm-hmm. and then applies and it Chusey's to And role in this is as Eric and he is a... He's the best friend of Otis, who's the teenage boy who becomes the sex therapist, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I... He is far and away my favourite character. I love lots of people and their roles in that, but the way that he brings out such complexity in what could be... A stereotyped character mm. and um, it's it's also the role of the writers because they have brought to the forefront lots of mm. issues that you I haven't seen on screen before so he's not that stereotypical sassy black gay friend mm-hmm. he makes it so much more than that and he makes me laugh out loud mm. and I felt a lot of anxiety around some of the storylines that he had and just wanting to know that he was going to be okay <laughs> Yeah, and I also think that his role, his character is, is almost genderless a little. Yes. Like, I just feel like his character just... It doesn't matter if he was a male or female. He was just a really good friend. Absolutely. And I love how this character is so expressive of themselves. So mm. he, he loves dressing up and he wears glitter and um, like fabulous high heels to go to a tribute film of Hedwig. Did I get that right? I don't know. I don't yet? think I have. I've, I'm only four episodes in, five okay. episodes in, whereas you've seen all of the okay. show. And in that scene, again, he is jumped um, by some people who find it offensive that a black man is dressed up in this way. And what was interesting with the just conversation with Elizabeth Day is that we got quite an insight into his own personal experience and how he drew on some of it and not in order to play the role of Eric. Mm. So one example of this was he he grew up in Edinburgh, 
born in Rwanda, moved when he was two to Edinburgh and was in Dundee one night and was jumped by some people when he was 21 but couldn't really remember what happened. And that just must be such a, like a traumatic experience and one of the questions I asked actually was what would you go back and say to that 21 year old and he said just cry because he said that he bottled up Mm. the trauma of that too much Mm. I think a lot of people do Um, Mm. also one of my friends said about just going back to sex education she said that I wish that sex education could be shown to all young people from like ages of sort of not you know 10 and adults and adults as a, as a way of teaching sex ed at school because it brings up all of these taboos about... Masturbation. Masturbation, uh, erectile dysfunction, pubic hair and abortion and, like, all the stuff that we just are so awkward about talking about in the UK. Um, and I and continue to be awkward about mm. talking about even after you're out of that tricky transitional phase. Right. But I think Would that, you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I completely agree with that. Would mm. it have been much more beneficial to be shown that than being talk, talking about... I don't know. I, don't, I can't even remember what we talked about. I think it was so surface nothing. level. Literally nothing. We didn't talk about anything. No. <laughs> like, it, was very, it felt very biological. And it wasn't even about contraception that much either. It was just about procreation. Yeah. But I feel like this is a, a, a big theme in school is that you're not ever prepared for careers or relationships and those are the two things that probably... Or mental health. Or mental health and they're the three things that probably, well no, will affect you the most in your life and you're not prepared for them at school. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I actually read some pieces um, of reviews on sex education and one watched it alongside her daughters but mm. separately. In that they didn't watch it in the same room. Oh, but they were watching it at the same time. Yeah. Oh, I would do the same as her. That's such a good idea. There are elements of it which I definitely would not be wanting to watch alongside my parents. It would... No, there is a lot of sex in it. It would uh, impact the enjoyment for everyone, I think. Totally. So she watches it alongside them and then they discuss it afterwards. Which I think is brilliant because then it raises the issues and Mm -hmm. then they can talk about it together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But back to Chuti... What did you discover in the interview that surprised you the most? Um, he's just a really lovely person. <laughs> um, I sort of fell in love with him a little bit. I he, think we all did. All he, 400 people yeah. in the audience. <laughs> he talked very poignantly about, sort of going back to this uh, point that you made about him being jumped, about not crying and bottling. He made this point about alcohol and about how it's very much in our culture as sort of 18 to 25 year olds to just go out and drink pretty mindlessly mm. um, and actually how it's used so often as a coping mechanism but in a very functional level so actually oh you don't and also that you see an alcoholic c- classically as a sort of old guy you know kind of like stumbling yep. around with no friends around him and is like it's, it's quite like, sexist as well isn't it but also but also, alcoholics can be the, the friend who's always out. Out, the one who's always the most fun, quote-unquote. Absolutely. Um, the family vlog that I watch all the time is the Nadia Sawala and family. And Mark, um, who's Nadia's husband, has been sober for 14 years. And he always, you say, he's like, I was the one who was like the life and soul of the party. I was always the one who was out. I was always the one having the most fun. But mm. what people didn't see is I'd come home and like drink another bottle of wine. 
and then not be able to funk, you know, and etc 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 and like didn't know where to but stop ev- even people who aren't necessarily drinking on their own which is another stereotypical image true that lots of people true. have of yeah. people who are alcoholics they can still actually they are alcoholics but they don't realize it because mm-hmm. i think certainly for some ages drinking has been so normalized so normalized. that you're not you're not even standing out no you're actually fitting in quite oh, often completely and um he has this very funny story about um he went through a, a stage where again bottling different emotions was in a sort of an abusive relationship drinking probably a little bit too emotionally much emotionally abusive not physically abusive but yes. um drinking a bit too much and then went on quite a bad bender i suppose in terms of like a big night out and then was late for his show that he was on at the globe um, of which he was playing the main character, which was sort of a wake-up... Very funny when he told it, but also a massive wake-up call for him. It was one of those stories where everybody was... Gripped. Uh, gripped, but also hysterically laughing, because when you look back on it, it's mm. so funny. Yeah. Especially the way that he told it. And he's such a comedian. It was brilliant. Yeah, he's great. So, and the, the episode was recorded, so we'll be able to link that when it comes out. But actually, if you think about what it would be like to be him at that time, that would be the most monumental failure and so much anxiety mm-hmm. over being so late to mm-hmm. something that was the last day of their performance. Mm-hmm. And because he was late, they then had to shift back a set change for Midsummer Night's Dream, which I think... He was, he was also, also a part in, of. Yeah. And that was being filmed by the BBC. Yeah. So there were all sorts of details that kept bubbling yeah. up and you just thought, wow. But he said so as well, bad. but what he said was awesome was he's like, the director just just saw completely through me and was like, just knew I was going through a terrible time. And it, it really reminded me of an, an experience where during my teens, I had some fairly, fairly turbulent moments. And there was one chemistry session after school that I just got absolutely every single question wrong we did a past paper so past papers probably have what like 20 30 questions i got every single question wrong and i was like oh my god she kept me back at the end of the class and i just started crying and i was in tears and she obviously knew that like the director had known with shooty and could kind of see through it so it wasn't angry whereas i also expected my teacher to just think Oh my god, Georgia! Like your exams are in a few months. What are you doing? Um, yeah. And again, I think people can relate to that feeling of sort of feeling as though they're holding it together, but they're really not. It was a great end to the story, actually, because mm. I was expecting the director and to all the cast members him. to be furious. Yeah. But actually, everybody was incredibly compassionate and empathetic as to how mm. difficult that must have been. Mm. When must have been the worst. Because he was he was kicking himself much more than anybody else would and it would Mm. only make it worse if they'd all criticized him and Mm. berated him for being late totally and his one of his last uh failures that he mentioned was you know not building a relationship with his father more and one of the reasons that he didn't is because the rwandan genocide of 94 kind of separated their family um and his mother and his three siblings moved to scotland um whereas his father sort of had to remain behind or I think moved with them initially and then had to go back for work opportunities um and I just was sort of touched again by how many people are affected by war affected by genocide all over the world all the time and you know in a very like London bubble I just it's so easy to forget that 
Um, and the Rwandan genocide of 94 was absolutely horrific with over, I think it was over 800,000 people were killed in 100 days between April and July. And it was conceived by extremists uh, of the Hutu population, which was sort of the dominant uh, tribe of Rwanda at the time. And they planned to kill all of the Tutsi population who were in the minority. Um, and, I mean, even sort of moderate Hutus were also killed. So anyone who wasn't an extreme or like very far over to on the Hutu side were all uh, killed. And he had this very moving image of him and his family hiding in his father's office while people were trying to get in and get to them. So um, apparently as many as two million Rwandans actually fled the country to escape the genocide wow. of, of his family being included. And the other thing that was interesting is that his mother chose Edinburgh mm. and Scotland generally because of the free university education, yeah. which I think is, it's so symbolic of how much mothers can think about their children and sacrifice so much for them. I know. It was really moving and I loved the way that he talked about his parents and yeah especially with his father actually because the the relationship between Eric and his own father is interesting and he plays that with huge what's the word kind of just depth mm. for both of them it's really really great scenes to watch all of the father son and mother son mother daughter all of those relationships in sex education are done with so much um nuance I think but with his own father I really hope that he listens to the how to fail recording because it may be difficult for him, for Chutu to say it to his face. And I can understand that because sometimes the people that you love the most are the people that you can't talk to about how much you love them. Totally. I really hope that he hears it because I think sometimes when you hear what someone else thinks of you and you not, you almost accidentally hear it, it's very comforting totally. and it's a really lovely experience. So I hope that he listens to it and I would encourage everybody else to listen to that recording when it comes out. The second figure that we will be talking about this week is that a third of marriages start from online relationships. And that is according to a study from 2017, so very recently. And actually, this doesn't surprise me. No. Um, I feel like everyone around me... For homosexual couples, it's the most common way to meet is online. And for heterosexual couples, it's the second most popular way to meet. So... We have just come from a conference talking about uh, spirituality and technology and specifically relationships in a digital age. And we opened our talk talking about dating apps. And I think this is really important because a lot of people, I feel, are very resistant to the notion of using a dating app. However, it is... <laughs> the stigma is definitely breaking down. But a fact like a third of marriages now start online, that mm-hmm. so many people will meet their spouse online. Um, and it's really interesting because that's something that is here to stay. I don't think that's going to change. And I was wondering what your opinion is on it. For a wider population, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's great. And I think that some of the research that we did in order to do the talk, I found really interesting. So because... 
you are meeting people by location or sometimes by preference of height or age or with hinge if you want children if you don't want children if you smoke if you drink you can kind of get access to lots Mm. of information that may play into your decision as to whether you're going to like them or not but quite often it will break you out of your normal social circles Mm. which i've really enjoyed you speaking about that yeah so good which i think just breaks social bubbles Mm -hmm. and forges far more many connections that you otherwise wouldn't have even if you end up not going out with that one person that you meet and you go for a drink with them and then you become friends with them then you may meet Mm. their friends and then it's again it's just a way of diversifying your friend group as much as it is your dating life. I also think it's important to note that the world is now so much more global and so much more diverse than it has ever been and that people are meeting so many different people that they wouldn't have met you know 50 years ago because they would have like you said stayed in the same social circles mm-hmm. um, and that's really important I think that's really good with online dating um, we talked about that with trauma groups as well just a mm. sideline so one of the questions we also asked the audience is have you ever talked to or connected with a stranger over something traumatic that has happened and then you've gone onto a space online where you've ended up talking about it and you felt that you were able to find people who had a common experience you otherwise might not have mm. been able to do if your immediate friends had not experienced that. Absolutely, and I think this is sort of the basis of influencers. I mean, the reason they get their platform is people resonate with them. Their experience, yeah. Certain experiences, and that's been a hugely um, up-and-coming market, and Mm -hmm. and that's something that will just continue to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And eventually, you know, people who have an online platform and they are expressive as to what their thoughts and feelings are about certain things will all be influencers. but bring it back to romantic yeah. relationships. And so my personal experience with dating apps is that I said this in the conference as well. Mm. I have And bear in mind I was very proud of you because your dad was in the second row. And your dad <laughs> when I asked you, I said, I'm gonna throw Charlotte under a bus now. What's your experience? And your dad was just like I didn't know like he was into the distance. I know you did, but I was watching your dad. Your dad was like, oh my God, what's she going to (laughs) say? Well, basically what he said is that I am a hopeless romantic, Mm -hmm. self-confessed. And I I do this with a lot of areas of my life, but particularly with relationships, I Mm -hmm. create a narrative Mm -hmm. that I look for. Mm -hmm. And one of my favourite questions to ask couples and like par- like friends parents mm-hmm. i think it's really interesting where did you meet mm-hmm. and then also how did you propose if they're married mm-hmm. i think you can go in a lot of insight into those people and for by you, through those questions you don't want to meet someone online you don't want i that don't to really be your want answer. my answer to be hinge. tinder hinge i'm slightly less stigma because of elizabeth about. day because of elizabeth day yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i think that's an interesting example because i hadn't heard that many people talk about I met my partner on this specific dating app mm. because they they will quite often just say through an app or mm. I don't know that she just... might have been paid to do that or something like I don't know mm, I don't know um no I mean Dolly Alston has also spoken about Hinge and actually for anyone who doesn't know loads so... of people are on Hinge I think Hinge is great yeah. I am so of the other thought by the I way know. I really do not care if I met my future spouse online uh, j- j- obviously for the record I, I'm in a relationship now um, and have been for a long time and met that person at school so I had a, a little bit more of a traditional mm-hmm. non-tech way but all of our early relationship 
communication was all on Snapchat. So if there was no Snapchat, there was no way we'd be together. Mm -hmm. No way. And that was actually something that we didn't really cover that fully is how you may not have met through technology, Mm -hmm. but then your relationship itself has been enabled and progressed and sustained through through technology. Because we're now long distance. Again, technology is huge in that. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting thing to to talk about, especially because um, also I think as well what we didn't really touch on either is that more and more people aren't necessarily part of an office environment or a company environment people a lot of people work for themselves a lot of people are freelance and actually you know that's a really good way of meeting people that you potentially want to date is through an app yeah and I think that so the reason I went back on hinge was because I moved to Edinburgh and I thought actually this is a really good way of meeting new people even if it's not new dating people (laughs) um i think the other thing about hinge is that i feel that different dating apps have different personalities which you don't really know until you start talking to people about it and then start using different ones so Mm -hmm. i say that tinder has for me it's kind of evolved now is it's quite a one night standy platform or that's the impression i get a Mm -hmm. lot Mm -hmm. um bumble I don't know, what do you think about Bumble? Bumble, essentially, for anyone who doesn't know, is the when you match with someone and you both like each other, the girl has to ask the first, make the first comment or, or question, or she has to start the conversation, essentially, and they've got 24 hours to do it. And the idea being a queen bee in charge. Okay. What do you think? I think that's great. Like, I'm... I'm I, I don't know, I'm quite pro... Dating apps, I literally think mm. it's, I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Hinge. One of my so funny. One of my colleagues um, was on Hinge. Met a girl through Hinge. I won't say her name because I don't want to like embarrass him. But he didn't know. <laughs> he went on a date with her, and it was went really well. I went on another date with her. Didn't know her last name, so saved her <laughs> name in his phone as her name Hinge. <laughs> which is really funny but they ended up having so much in common they're from the same place at home so they grew up really near each other um she went to durham as well Mm -hmm. um now works in london and yeah they're you know Mm. they're really happy they've been dating like two three months Mm -hmm. and i just hinge feels more like a dating platform i Mm. think part of the reason for that is because you've got to answer or say three things about yourself as well as having images and i think that when it's reduced to something that is so superficial it can be difficult More to like get an image. to exactly. It can be difficult to get to know them enough to be curious. But mm. then that's the other thing that I find a huge problem with dating platforms is that I feel that it is such a curated version of yourself, and you're trying to put your best puns, your best photos. But you're like filters. that in dating in real life anyway. Like you do not know a person. Oh, I would say at least until six months in when those boundaries finally go down because you're trying to put the best, your best self forward all the time. That's the same in real life. That is true. And actually on a dating app, if you're like, oh, both of us are single, both of us want to date. Oh, you're really attractive. Let's try and talk. Oh, talking is really good. Let's meet up for a Mm. date. Actually, it's quite likely that you'll Mm. hit it off. I Mm -hmm. don't know. Again, this is someone who hasn't been single for over five years. <laughs> but, like, I just feel like yeah. you're you're kind of not also, yourself anyway, yeah. in, initially. I just think, for me, it also makes me judge people in a really harsh way that I don't really like. But what, from, from their picture? 
from their whole profile. And yeah. I might like a couple of photos, but then I'll read what they say and I don't like that. And then I immediately say no. Do you not just want, give them a ch- want to give them a chance? I probably should do that more often. <laughs> okay. Um, but if I met know, someone in real life, know. I wouldn't. It, I wouldn't have that same kind of like cancel culture. Yeah, but surely you know that the the an online image is a difficult one to put and to actually have to to write out those individual bios can yeah, be really annoying. So surely if you see someone that sort of hits like fifty percent of what you're looking for, you'd be like, oh, yeah. let's see. Sometimes it just comes across in such an arrogant way, and that I know mm. that I'm not going to enjoy having a conversation with them if that's the way that they're talking about mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. So you can actually gain a lot, but mm. it does feel, it can feel quite fake in a way that I would rather have an old school. You're there with their friends. You're with your friends. You immediately have something that's more shared and more instant in a way, and with a lot less forward thinking of what you're going to put across or what you're going to say but you don't have to necessarily forward think as much as you yeah but it definitely as a medium it encourages Mm -hmm. that doesn't it yeah the third figure that we're talking about today is a painting called composition with large red plain painted in 1921 by the artist piet mondrian who was from the netherlands and it's going to be another art interview session with Georgia and Charlotte. <laughs> yes. Uh, first question. Uh, why do I recognise it? So, one of the things about this movement, which is called neoplasticism, was founded by the artist Mondrian. And it essentially translates from newer building, which uh, means new art in Dutch. And then it became neoplastisme in French and then neoplasticism in English. And it was a kind of philosophy and manifesto of what art could do for society. So he thought that there was a very therapeutic aspect to art and that he could rebalance society in some way through his art. And the movement as a whole was popular at the time but wasn't really continued but what's interesting is that there are the legacy of this movement means that it's been used in street art Mm. in uh fashion for example so Yves Saint Laurent he did a whole line which was inspired by Mondrian and neoplasticism so that might partly be why you've seen it it's color blocking to do with that what do you mean by color blocking like when you have a sort of red and a yellow and it's like two very dis- like bright, distinct colours like next to each other, or like black and red, or just sort of odd combinations of colours that mm-hmm. you wouldn't ne- like pink and red together, for example. And just like, oh. um, might be partly inspired by that. I didn't read anything specifically okay. about that. Um, but yeah, as you pointed out, so Montreal only used the primary colours: red, yellow, and blue, plus black and white. And part of the reason I think that he did this is because he was trying to create a painting that was a distillation of nature. And he was looking at the ingredients of what makes up everything in the world. It's those colours, mm-hmm. and it's vertical lines and horizontal lines. Okay. And the way that they're arranged. Ah, oh, and so that's why... Do they... Does it... Um, does he use the... Go- like, can the golden ratio be seen? Yes. Really? Yeah. Okay. So we always, <laughs> we always like talk, we about, talk about the golden ratio. It's really important. It's really important. It is. So 
the golden ratio is 1 to 1.618 and it goes on because it's an infinite number and it is a proportion that is seen in nature and is also seen a lot in artworks and what's interesting about this specific one that we've chosen is that when I've just been googling and looking around because lots of his artwork looks quite similar it's all got the same sort of structure mm. colors idea behind it certainly from this period but this particular one keeps on coming up and when I looked at it for my um, history of art degree this one I found that he had consciously or unconsciously put the golden ratio right into the main it's body. It's really obvious, isn't it? Yeah. So there's one big red square and then there's a yellow square and then two small white ones, right rectangles, and the proportion of those yellow and white together next to the red is the golden ratio. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this in relation to, um, well, the golden ratio episode, but as well as with the Mona Lisa episode, mm-hmm. that psychology has shown that people are subconsciously drawn to this mm-hmm. proportion. So it just feels very harmonious and therefore they like it, even if they don't know that they're looking at the golden ratio. Mm-hmm. So that one coming up as one of the most popular, I think that's got an interesting thing to say and to kind of support this evidence like this research that people like this proportion and they feel attracted to it Mm. also another question i had is it was made in so 1921 so that was neoclassism were there any other sort of movements that were happening at that time cubism cubism george george brack i remember learning about him picasso and picasso so cubism really was um 1907 which was when the demoiselle d'avignon was painted is when cubism is most most historians will say that that's the beginning of cubism but this was very much part inspired by cubism and not only in the way that it is abstract and it takes it's not looking at something and then representing it exactly as that on the canvas it's sort of taking the essence of it and this is I think something that's hugely misunderstood about abstract art in general mm. is that just because it looks like they've just put lines and and paint on a canvas doesn't mean that it's not representing anything mm-hmm. so one of my favorite quotes from Picasso is that there is no abstract art you must always start with something afterwards you can remove all traces of reality there's no danger then anyway because the idea of the object will have left an indelible mark so what I looked at with Mondrian is that he studied lots of trees and the way that they, the branches moved out. And we can do this on Instagram, I guess, we can show the kind of progression. But basically those tree sketches ended up becoming sketches of cubes and then the cubes were more distinguished and then more and more and more. Mm. And the development of his work is the best way to look at it and where you can understand that actually the principles of that tree in nature that it's made up from those primary colours, red, yellow, blue, Mm. black, white, the vertical, the horizontal, those are the kind of essentials of anything that you need to make anything. And that's still there, and I think that's why his paintings have been so popular and have been used by designers, by artists. They keep on resurfacing, Mm. even though that's actually, like, it's almost 100 years ago. And it's funny because, on the one hand, I feel like it's really aesthetically pleasing. On the other hand, I really don't. Mm. I just think I don't would want don't think I'd want that in my house. But then on the other hand, is it, it looks because it's really cliched sat- though? Um, 
No, it's just, I just, I feel like it's a bit modern and a bit sort of harsh. And I okay. think I'd want sort of more traditional paintings of maybe mm. more beautiful landscapes or portraits. Um, whereas that just looks like, oh, squares and colours. And I think I'd appreciate it more in a sort of big white wall in a gallery. Yeah. Whereas in my home, I don't think I'd, I think it's, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I think one of the criticisms that this sort of art would receive, and the same with um, things like abstract expressionism, which is when you see those splattered paint mm-hmm. paintings by Jackson Pollock. Okay. So people will see paintings like that, and they'll see paintings by Mondrian, and they'll go, anyone could do that. Mm-hmm. And then you start actually unpicking it, and you unpick why they chose to do certain things. What were they thinking about? What were they reading? What mm-hmm. was going into their head when they were creating these paintings? And that, I think, leaves an indelible mark on the canvas, as mm-hmm. Picasso said. Mm-hmm. Um, and with abstract expressionism in particular, with Jackson Pollock, they've done experiments of, um, it's called fractal patterns, and you see them, so if you go through a forest and you look up to nature, and you've got all the trees, mm-hmm. and the branches are kind of crossing over each other, those form fractal patterns. And then they've looked at abstract expressionism paintings by Jackson Pollock particularly, and they see the same fractal patterns in the way that he splattered the paint. So if if anyone just goes along and just puts that line there or that splattered of paint there, it doesn't have the same resonance as Mm -hmm. it did with Mondrian or Jackson Pollock, Mm. in my opinion. That's an interesting insight, yeah. because I think a lot of people do think that anyone could have done it. And there's always more behind it, and um, so one of the philosophies that underpins Mondrian's work is something called Theosophy, which was founded by a woman called Helena Blavatsky, and Theosophy basically means God wisdom, and I think the best way to describe this, this was all um, early 20th century and like late 19th century that it was all sort of developed, and then it gathered lots of followers, and it was sort of um, it was after Darwin had published *The Origin of Species*, mm-hmm. and people really began to question traditional religions and beliefs, but they also were looking for some kind of spiritual outlet mm-hmm. and something that could bring people together. So, theosophy—I think the best symbolic way of describing it is if you've got a prism of light. And you know, light is like white. And then if you put it in a spectrum, it's just all these different colours. Rainbow. So they saw each different world religion as a different colour. And theosophy is the white light bringing all of them together. So it's it's something that really resonates with me now because I like how inclusive it is in that um, foundational aspect of it. Totally. But what's interesting with Mondrian particularly, he saw that kind of those principles of um, nature philosophy, like spirit, the soul, he talked about that a lot and wrote about it a lot, which loads of art historians completely ignored just because they had their own agenda and they were like, this is abstract art and abstract art and the progression of art means that you're only representing paint on a canvas, but they didn't look at his writing. Um, and with theosophy, he, he ended up distinguishing between theosophy as a way of thinking and then theosophists as people who actually practised it because he ended up feeling quite rejected from that society himself. And I think it's it's sort of the same way that you can distinguish from the principles of Christianity or the principles of Islam and, and then the Christians. actual people yeah. who practice it. Totally. And I quite like the way that you can distinguish them and then they can coexist, mm-hmm. but actually you don't have to call yourself a Christian 
to believe in the principles of Christianity in the same way with every world religion. They all come down quite often to the same thing. Mm -hmm. But that's what Theosophy was trying to draw out, and then that's what Mondrian was trying to represent in his art. Thank you so much, Shah. That was so (laughs) interesting. Good, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure Podcast. As always, we love to hear from everyone. So please uh, leave us a tweet or an Instagram message at Figure Podcast. Also, please subscribe. Uh, We would love to have you back next time. And please leave a review and rate us um, because it will help us to boost Find new listeners. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week. Until next week. Bye-bye.